Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We have a lot to talk about, and joining us uh, on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, bear with me, please. We have a brand-new telephone system, which I have to acquaint myself with. But with us is um, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, the National Counterterrorism Force, and now president of Reticle, our premium niche security solutions company. Colonel, good to have you with us. Right, pleasure to be back with you, sir. Let's begin uh, by looking at our Canadian reality, and then we can segue into what's going on in the United States. Um, as we also have said, the president has signed an executive action to, in addition to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, to fund a significant increase in spending on troops and equipment for the U.S. military. The president also has repeatedly warned NATO allies that they'd best meet NATO military funding requirements, a percentage of GDP, which I don't believe Canada has done consistently for quite some time. Why, what does Canada's military need most? And, Colonel Day, have our armed forces been forced to make do with less than even the minimum necessary? Because I remember soldiers telling me on air some years ago that during military exercises, they were required to jump up from cover, point an imaginary weapon at an enemy combatant and shout, bang. Yes, well, regardless of political federal government that's been in place since certainly the uh, early 90s, the the Department of National Defense and quite honestly the entire national security apparatus has been under-resourced, under-resourced in both money, personnel, um, and just general equipment to get to, to get the job done. So we are we are grossly lacking across the general purpose force and the military in particular to enable us to do all the tasks that the government of Canada asks. So. Just for, for some metrics, if we compare Canada to Australia, because it's a, normally a very good comparison, um, Australia is paying or, or spending almost 2% of their gross domestic product to the tune of about $32 billion this year for defense, whereas Canada is down around 1%, and we're spending in around $18.6 billion. So just another metric that's kind of important on that, Australia has 24 million people, and Canada has 36 million people. So if we just look at Australia as a, as a peer nation, as an ally, as a Commonwealth partner, Canada is arguably under-resourcing the national security apparatus. Are you at all encouraged by what you've heard from the current government about what they're going to do for the military as far as getting equipment uh, is concerned and providing the necessities, or is it just a continuation of what we've already experienced? Well, my, my personal opinion, it is a continuation of a 25-year trend where we are asking the men and women in Canada's Defence Force to do more with less. And it's quite frankly because a lot of the, the political masters don't understand the threats that this country faces on, a, on any given day. And we've been very fortunate today that that under-resourced both bureaucracy and response mechanism has been able to thwart the vast majority of those threats. So uh, I'm, I'm not... Um, positive about uh, resourcing our national security apparatus, including national defense. I, I, I'm, a, I'm very pessimistic on that. But that being said, I do have an optimistic outlook on where Canada sits in the world and, uh, and how we do deal with some of these threats. How does this affect, for example, Joint Task Force 2 from doing its job? Because your responsibility, as you pointed out to us previously, is domestic counterterrorism, but JTF2 also has an international responsibility or role to play. 
Absolutely. And so it's a great question, because what often gets missed is people think they can cherry pick and fund specific elements within the wider general purpose force. So Joint Task Force 2, as that tip of the spear, that, that true crown jewel of the Canadian special operations capability, must be enabled by a wider general purpose force. So we only need to look at the, the John Rods, Risedale and Robert Hall's uh, hostage situations in the Philippines last year. Canada, arguably, does not have an effective response to those international ones because we cannot get there without asking somebody else for help. And as a first world nation, as I've said repeatedly, if you want JTF2 or you want the National Mission Force to be able to respond anywhere on this planet on behalf of Canadians, you actually have to have a wider military apparatus, national security apparatus, funded and functioning to enable that final mile. And that does not exist today. Colonel Day, had it been um, Israeli citizens, had it been American citizens, had it been British citizens, would they have had the capability, the capacity, to take the required military action to free those hostages had their governments decided to move in that direction? Well, the, the, the only power, the only global power today that can do things unilaterally is, is truly the United States. Almost everybody else in varying degrees needs somebody else for global force projection. What I mean, what I mean by that, the ability to go from your home shores out to where you want to prosecute a target and return that, uh, those, those hostages or whatever they may be back to a safe zone. The only people that can truly do that are the U.S. The difference is many other countries, including, like you said, the, the French, the, well, maybe not French so much, but the, the British um, and the Israelis have the political will to ask the favors where necessary to enable those forces to go out and, and, and try and rescue those folks if they had to. And sometimes we, we don't understand that we don't have the political will or, or knowledge to ask the right questions of our allies. When we ask young men and women to put their lives at risk, put their lives on the line, literally for this country, which they voluntarily do, and swear an oath to do, then the responsibility of the political leaders is to, at the very least, give them the best equipment possible and provide them with the assurance that they will constantly have their backs. That hasn't been the case in this country for too long. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Colonel Day, you know what uh, President Trump has uh, has done, the executive actions he's taken as far as keeping or closing the door of the United States to refugee claimants and closing the door of the United States to citizens of seven countries, uh, Muslim-majority companies in the middle, uh, countries in the Middle East and uh, North Africa. As you look at that decision taken by the president and the reason he gives that he wants to assess and make sure that the, his country is safe from terrorist attack, what do you make of that? Well, I don't want to get into the U.S. political uh, machine because we're certainly living in interesting times. But what I what I would suggest strongly is um, it's a bit of dog whistle politics. And uh, when you when you look at um, the refugee crisis across the Middle East and and what is happening there, we need to understand that the the situation between the Middle East, Europe, and North America are three fundamentally fundamentally different spheres, and the vast vast majority of those refugees are seeking a better life. So if we put some faith in our, our system to screen those folks appropriately, then the chance of something happening on the backside of that when they come to Canada, where for the most part we welcome them, we give them an opportunity, and the bottom line is we give them hope, then we don't have the same situations that those same refugees are finding in Europe or, or potentially in the U.S. 
Let's look at some of the uh, things that uh, the president has said over the last week uh, that he's been in command in the United States, the commander-in-chief. He's talked about um, torture and that he believes that torture is an effective tool to get in, extract information from uh, individuals who are under, uh, have been captured, who are um, suspected to be terrorists or you know, enemies of the United States. How would you, as a former commander of Canada's elite counterterrorism force, JTF2, how, first of all, how do you define torture? Well, torture, the, the legal definition is the kind of wanton um, physical or mental abuse of a person for either a punishment or trying to elicit their, you know, retribution. It is not interrogation. So torture has proven repeatedly to be not effective. Because what is the point of torturing someone to get a false confession or potentially give you intelligence or information that's not accurate? So uh, uh, torture, um, it's illegal. There's a United States Convention or a Convention on Torture from 1994. Um, the International Criminal Court has said torture is illegal. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to step with the definition of torture. Interrogation, though, and tactical questioning are legal methods to extract information from somebody who has potentially information that you are looking for, um, and hopefully if you can get it out in, in enough time, it may be turned into actionable intelligence. And what I mean by that is it's a piece of information that can be validated, confirmed, and you can use it then to base um, decisions on. Carl Day, where's the line then between, let's call it aggressive interrogation and torture? Well, the, the, the line is, again, it's even aggressive interrogation, as long as we're in that in, interrogation space as defined, and I don't want to necessarily tip our hands to our adversaries, but you, you, you blend over that when you get tortured, when it's wanton, purposeful infliction of harm on someone. And that um, not only harms the individual under torture, what we sometimes lose sight of is those people that do that, like our, our law enforcement, our intelligence folks, they suffer post-traumatic stress and a number of other issues, unless they're psychopaths. So the, the torture path hurts not only our own people, but it hurts the person that clearly we're, we're inflicting that upon and may be giving us information that's not accurate. Now, the new U.S. president, Daley, has used terminology his predecessor, Barack Obama, never or hardly ever used, particularly saying Islamic terrorists. Whose approach is better? Well, again, now we're in the political space. I'm, I'm not 100% sure between branding any form of extremist with a certain nomenclature is necessarily helpful. Yes, these are um, Islamist-inspired jihadis in some cases, but they're extremists. And there's no difference between these crazy people, these scourge that must be removed, and someone on the far Christian right or someone that's got either an eco or another political agenda. Anytime extremism comes to play, we need to deal with that, and we need to deal with it harshly. With uh, President Trump committed to building a wall between Mexico and the United States. I've heard several interviews during which Canada has been warned to be prepared for an influx of refugee claimants from Mexico, as well as becoming of greater interest for illegal entry by terrorists and narco-criminals whose access to the United States will have become significantly less simple. What do you say about that? Well, I guess what we need to understand from just, from just a defensive system in, in general, the general comment, no defensive system is perfect. It just is not perfect. Because if you want a perfect defensive system, you need to look at it from a cost-benefit relationship. We can have potentially live in a police state 
we could potentially take away all our privacy and our freedoms of uh, you know language and freedoms of religion, etc., to try and get a certain degree of, of security. Well, it's just it's not worth that. So the best approach is a layered defense. You start out with your virtual, your cyber um, security rings. You then bring through that information in through various technology to when you get to the last stand, it's like a football analogy on the one-yard line. That last one-yard stand, you can't always prevent in that defense somebody from scoring a touchdown. So you've got to layer out your defense. You've got to get the information out of the right people's hands at the right time. We need to break down the silos inside of these different uh, national security architectures so they can share the information and so then try and keep the people out. So going back to your question, I'm actually not convinced that building a wall or whatever the president may wish to do against Mexico is going to solve everything because one thing about humans, we're incredibly innovative, and when we're trying to find a better way for our families, irrespective of, of where we come from, humans will find a way to get around the wall. I have 20 seconds, Colonel Day. Are we capable of properly defending our borders, our population centers, and our infrastructure from determined terror plotters in this country? Well, I, I guess the question back to you is, like, how do we define properly? I would suggest we're doing a, an above-average job. But as we said off the top, I think we need to resource the national security, national defense apparatus better to let those men and women who are doing what we ask them to do, sacrificing what we ask them to sacrifice, to set conditions for their success. And I don't think we're all the way there yet. Always good talking to you, Colonel Day. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Roy, and all the best to your listeners. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So what they've done, just in case you haven't heard what uh, the president signed by way of executive order, there is uh, the suspension to the United States of uh, Syrian refugees, and that will be in force until the president has decided whether allowing Syrians is, quote, consistent with the national interest, end quote. The uh, same order actually suspends the entire United States refugee program for four months. And then for at least 90 days, anyone traveling to the U.S. from Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Iran, Libya, Sudan, and Somalia, so the Middle Eastern and North African countries, mostly Muslim, they are barred from entering the United States for 90 days. And President Trump has said that he needs to do this in order to, quote, uh, keep out radical Islamic terrorists, end quote. Excuse me. And uh, when it comes to the refugee issue, there is the possibility that individual refugee cases will be heard, possibility, on a case-by-case basis. But that will have to do with whether these refugee claimants are members of a religious minority group that is being persecuted because of their religion. And if you happen to have a green card, which means that you are legal in the U.S. and have a work permit... If you're from one of those seven countries that I mentioned earlier, um, that green card will not protect you. If you have left the United States and you want to get back into the country, and the countries again are Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Iran, Libya, Sudan, and Somalia. If you've left the United States and you want to get back into the country, even if you have a green card, they will not let you in. There were also, there's a story of the two Iraqi refugee claimants were detained at Kennedy Airport. One has been released. And Keith Ellison, the, uh, the first Muslim congressman elected in the United States, 
has called on uh, resistance to President Trump's decisions. Also joining us, and he was scheduled to be with us tomorrow, but we've uh, we've called him early, and he was very kind uh, to come on early with us, is Dr. Zudi Jasser, who is uh, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander. Dr. Jasser, great to talk to you. Uh, these decisions taken by President Trump, how do you uh, how do you respond? You have family in Syria. Yeah, you know, I think the, the most important thing, Roy, is to know what we're talking about uh, and uh, the exaggeration and the hyperbole about what actually his order is and what it entails is uh, beyond belief. He stopped uh, immigration from six countries, and it's a pause. It's what he was calling for during the campaign, and we agreed with. The part I don't agree with so far is the pause seems to be for five of the countries except Syria. So the country that really has the most need for refugees and millions displaced uh, seems to be the one that he's indefinitely holding. And there's also this question about the ones that are already in midst of travel and on the way here. Uh, there's a lot of uh, media reports today that some are being held up in transit. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I hope, uh, you know, my sense is I know on the one hand, candidates, once they become president, like to follow through on promises quickly. But on the other hand, I think he needs that commission. And he talked about a commission against radical Islam. He needs that commission in place to help him change that vetting process. Otherwise, the pause is just going to be a pause and it'll all be for naught. While uh, I was talking about this in the last hour, and it was all developing, of course, it's all developed in the last in the last hours. Um, I, I was thinking that the president made the decision extremely quickly. He took office a week ago. And if he'd, con- I don't like the word consulted, but if he'd, uh, if he'd talked to Americans about what he was going to do, what he was planning on doing quickly, and in fact, take these steps, and I know he's talked about this, but if he'd said, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do, do you think that might have been more effective than to just sign the order? Uh, um, you know, that's how I would have done it, uh, but uh, obviously I'm not the president of the United States. I, I think, you know, the big issue with anything the president of the United States and the leader of the free world does is not only keeping us safe, but it's messaging. And what's been missing in the messaging is not only to counter this misnomer that it's a Muslim ban, but rather against certain countries, uh, but rather to say that, you know, listen, we're not going to change what America means, which is the haven for those who want to be free, the haven for those who who really do want to reject tyranny, but that's not being said. So you know, my, my advice for what it's worth is that, uh, yes, we highlight security and say that we are going to do that and telescope that, but also say that uh, we're not going to change what America is and uh, redefine the fact that we're no longer that beacon on a hill for freedom. So you're right. It should have been uh, uh, led with uh, better messaging. And if he doesn't have that commission in place, uh, and I, I don't know how that executive order is going to mean much unless he engages America in a conversation about how that vetting is going to be done because there's a lot of conversations now, Roy, about, well, are they going to ask them if they believe in Sharia and all this other stuff? Well, that's really not the way to do it if you want to vet against the Islamist global jihadist movement. So, Dr. Jasser, what then should the president do? This this is now in, in force, or it will be if it isn't already. I'm not sure if the executive order takes action immediately. But either way, it's going to be it's going to be the policy of the United States, as I understand it. Um, what does he need to do going forward? He said 90-day suspension of the refugee program, four months for the six or seven countries in the Middle East and North Africa. 
What has to happen? What would you do in the 90 days or the four months to get Americans actually talking to one another? Because the sense I get, this is an, yours is an increasingly polarized country, and this will only make it worse. Yeah, to bridge the polarization, we have to say, listen, um, we understand that we're going to, one of the things he's already said, which is to create safe zones in Syria to fix the cancer at its core. Now, how he does that while being nice to Russia and Assad, I have no idea, since that's the primary problem is the genocide being perpetrated not only by ISIS, but by Putin and Assad. But having said that, I think he needs to uh, empower uh, General Mattis now, who's uh, going to head the uh, Department of Defense to uh, quickly decimate ISIS over the next few months as we do this. And then also when we talk about refugees to say, well, we want to bring people and welcome people in that share our values. How do we determine that? Let's have a national conversation about what our values are. If people are coming in committing acts of, as we see throughout Europe, the, the thousands committing crimes against women and other things, that's not what refugees are about. So how do we vet that? create a bipartisan commission that looks at the ideology that threatens us, just as in the Cold War. We didn't accept communists in, even though we were fighting the Soviets. We, we said there are ideologies that are incompatible. So engage reformist Muslims in doing that and say, listen, we're not going to change what America is. And, and I think that's the only way forward. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you think that uh, the administration would like this country to respond? Our callers have been saying that First of all, they agree substantially with the decision taken by President Trump, and they feel, these are callers to the program, are saying that this country should respond positively or maybe in lockstep with the U.S. administration so that we're not looked upon negatively by the president. Well, you know, it'd be fascinating to see what Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, uh, response would be. He's been on the other side of this, basically saying he'd accept anyone blindly, so uh, I think you're right. You're, uh, the majority of Canadians probably don't agree with uh, your prime minister's position on that. And uh, I think it does need to be a little uh, more ideological vetting rather than simply vetting against terror groups and other things that are just uh, impossible. They should look at social media platforms and footprints on, on many of the people coming in. They're not doing any of that. Uh, so, yeah, I think that uh, this is something that uh, NATO countries, uh, not only just the U.S. and Canada, but European countries should begin to talk about. I hope that's what the president and, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the U.K. Prime Minister May was talking about. So, yeah, we need to begin in the West to say, listen, this is a battle within the House of Islam, but the jihadist global movement cannot uh, uh, be ignored. There is a, a feeding ideology there, and we in the West need to work together. Because look at in Europe. The, the terror cells in Paris went to Belgium, went through Italy, et cetera, yes. and these countries need to work together. Similarly, here in the U.S. and Canada, we have to work with the Canadian government to help vet those traveling across our borders. Uh, I was thinking earlier that this is uh, the war on terror 2.0. It is. And, but I, 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 don't like, you know, I don't like the, the, the term war on terror because that's a tactic. I'm praying that the next conversation from President Trump will be changing this axis of violent extremism or terrorism to say violent Islamism, that it's a war on violent Islamism, but our greatest allies are Muslim reformers who believe in freedom and liberty. Zudi, thank you so much for coming on at very, very short notice, and I hope we can still uh, have our conversation tomorrow as well. Anytime. Thanks, Roy. Appreciate thank you, it. Dr. Zudi Jasser, the uh, founder of the American Islamic Forum. 
for Democracy, the, uh, the moderate Muslim movement in the United States, the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Joining us on the program is Bruce Lavelle. He's the executive director of the National Diversity Coalition for Trump in the United States. So one of the members of the coalition is Alveda King, the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King. Mr. Lavelle, thank you very much for the time. Thanks, Roy. Thanks for having me. How do you assess the decisions taken by President Trump and the speed with which he's taken them, the executive orders on the suspension of the refugee program and the suspension for four months of any travel to the United States from by citizens of the seven countries we've all been talking about. How do you assess that? Well, it's it's really a very easy assessment. You know, I've been with him since uh, 2015 of June when he announced, and he's basically fulfilling his promises. And I don't. It's it's amazing to see why some of the, I, I guess the, the world and American citizens are a little shocked. I'm not because he's basically living up to what he said about you know, vetting some of these particular countries where there has some unrest and uneasy relationships as relates to, um, you know, radical Islamic terrorism that's been going on. So, you know, unfortunately, too, Roy, historically, um, we've kind of built this monster from Democrat and Republican side that have always come in historically and promised the American people in the world they're going to have immigration reform as a great talking point and then go right back to doing nothing. So this is something that's been dawned on and kicked the can down and not addressed aggressively enough that's been put in Donald Trump's, uh, President Trump's lap, who's saying, hey, I'm going to take lead on this and I'm going to fulfill my promises that I set through in the campaign. What's the reaction so far in the United States, apart from the predictable political reaction, the uh, uh, we know the Democrats are going to decry anything that Donald Trump does, but what's the what's right. the population's reaction and response been well, largely? You know, it's kind of like this. I'm in Atlanta. I'm in the South. My dad and my uncles were came out of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, and you know, my uncle marched with Ralph Abernathy and knew Avita King's, you know, uncle who was Martin King. So there's a lot of rich history as it relates to uh, standing up against quote uh, radical Christianity, which was the Ku Klux Klan, you know, the Jim Crow laws. Right. So, you know, um, the thing about that is the challenging factor is always putting uh, the imams and other folks in leadership in the Muslim uh, countries as well as in the United States. Like, look, you guys got to step up and govern these other folks that are taking your your religion and trying to distort it. So it's kind of a putting more putting the ball back in some of these, uh, you know, uh, friendly, you know, should I say. Uh, Muslim leaders and Muslim countries have look, we need some help with this. Mr. Lavelle, there's uh, the prevailing opinion has been, certainly the opinion that's been put forward by mainstream media in the United States, which has had a great deal of difficulty uh, <clears throat> saying anything positive about President Trump. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, they may not have yet. But the, the prevailing opinion has been that minorities, any minority group in the U.S., mm -hmm feels threatened by the president, feels that he has evil intent for them. You represent, you're the executive director of the National Diversity Coalition mm -hmm. for Trump. Speak to us about, I mean, the, the, the I don't quite know how to phrase the question. Um, why is Donald Trump and why is his position, why is he attractive to you and to members of the National Diversity Coalition for Trump? 
Well, first off, uh, National University College for Trump, which stands for NDCTrump.com, we are the largest multicultural <clears throat> organization in the history of any Republican candidate in these United States of America, number one. We have over 15 million-plus uh, followers and supporters. Wow. Nobody, nobody, nobody would find that out from mainstream media. <laughs> no. Well, ironically, we're a volunteer organization, so we're not funded by super PACs or any special interest groups, which gives us a lot of authenticity, and we're very organic and very appealing. Case in point, my CEO, Pastor Daryl Scott, um, C.J. Tara, you know, Dr. Lisa Shen, who was in the RNC, everything you've seen on the net, you know, with Alveda King, and Bernal Donald that you see are on Fox a lot. These are all our coalition members and, and you know, advocates that's been going on for two years. But the interesting thing is where we where we formed this is because the liberal left were trying to create Donald as to being this, you know, President Trump or President Trump being this racist way back in November of 2015. So this coalition formed and it grew and it grew. And so we went out and like, oh, wait a minute. This is not true. The other thing, too, Roy, is unfortunately, especially – in America, that the uh, the black vote, especially and, and a lot of the Hispanic vote, has been under what we call a generational curse. It's like, well, I've always voted for this, I've always voted for that. So it's kind of like a a brainwashing mindset. And the Democrats have historically have went and promised, and of course, never done anything. But you know, ironically, Chicago, L.A., parts of South Atlanta, and Miami, and South Dallas are under Democrat regime. So it's it's kind of like this 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 new family member who called President-elect Trump that has challenging the inner cities. For example, in the state of, in his inauguration speech, if you notice, he spoke about inner cities. No president, Democrat or Republican, has really said all that killing in Chicago and all this stuff is going to stop now. No, no nobody has. has ever done that. In nobody has. The urban renewal is real. Uh, Jim Brown and Steve uh, Harvey and all the celebs that we're trying to use that, we're using all hands on deck from celebrities to actors to butchers to bakers to candlestick makers. Because when Ben Carson gets this thing going with HUD and the president on the revitalization of these inner cities, this is real stuff. This is real stuff. Right. So Mr. L- Mr. The liberal left is like, I, I'm, well, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to stop you because the clock has been our enemy, particularly today with the developing right. stories. I hope you'll come back on the program. Oh, anytime. We're, 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 there's a lot of things brewing, man. We're, we're just getting up and going. <laughs> def- definitely call you again. Thanks so much for the time today. All right. Thanks for having me, Roy. All the best. Bruce Lavelle is the executive director of the National Diversity Coalition for Trump in the United States. Some 15 million members, including the, uh, the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Stephen Legomsky, uh, Professor Stephen Legomsky, was the chief counsel at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services during the administration of President Barack Obama. And uh, the professor is also a professor of uh, law at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Professor Lugomsky, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Some legal experts argue that Donald Trump doesn't have the constitutional power to make the refugee and immigration decisions he's made this week. You disagree? Um, I think it's a very difficult constitutional question. Um, There is a law 
here in the United States, which says that uh, any time the president uh, determines that the admission of any class of aliens, to use the statutory language, would be, and now I'm quoting again, detrimental to the interests of the United States, unquote, uh, then the president does have the power to exclude that group of people. The problem is that um, if you exclude people on the basis of their religion, then there is a serious constitutional question uh, as to whether this violates uh, the guarantee of the free exercise of religion. What makes it complicated here is the fact that technically, officially, uh, this is not a ban based on religion, it's a ban based on which country you are from. It's just that every one of the countries that, is, that appears on the list that you just described uh, happens to be a Muslim-majority country. And given uh, Mr. Trump's campaign rhetoric in which he initially advocated a ban on, on Muslims, um, there could be a strong argument made that um, despite what it looks like on paper, in practice, this is really a ban on Muslims. So if I hear you correctly, I hear you saying there's going to be a court challenge or several court challenges. I would expect them, yes. So there is already at least one court challenge. Uh, what happened uh, earlier this morning uh, is that um, a number of people who are already on the airplane flying to the United States at the time the uh, executive order was announced landed at airports, mostly at JFK in New York, and they were detained and uh, turned back uh, on, with the idea that the executive order applies even to those of you who are already en route. The ACLU and some other attorneys were ready for this to happen, and they had a complaint already written, and it has been filed in the federal court in New York. So we'll wait to see what happens with that case. Um, how surprised are you at the decision, maybe not so much the decision, but the speed with which President Trump has taken this decision? Um, I guess I'm not so surprised at the speed. Really, all, all bets were off as to whether he would follow through on some of his more extreme campaign promises. Um, so I wasn't shocked when this happened. And by the way, one thing I might add is that it, the policy is actually even more sweeping uh, than what you mentioned initially. Um, it's not only people from those seven listed countries, but no refugee admissions from anywhere in the world uh, will take place other than on a possible case-by-case -case basis when there's been religious persecution for the next 120 days. What happens with people from those seven countries is they're subjected to an additional restriction. They cannot come in, uh, even as uh, immigrants, even as temporary visitors, they can't come in for any reason uh, for the next 90 days. And that includes people who have been living lawfully in the United States with green cards, so-called permanent residence permits, right. who left the country temporarily and are now stranded as they try to come back. Uh, you've given us an outline of what the legal reality Maybe, and that'll be tested in court. But, uh, but how do you see this? How do you interpret this as? How do you view it as a policy decision? I have a pretty strongly held view that this is a terrible uh, policy decision. Um, many uh, Americans, particularly, I think, are unaware of how rigorous the vetting procedure already is for anybody coming in into this program. Uh, in order to come in into the program, first of all, you're interviewed multiple times. Um, in addition to that, the documents are forensically examined. The officials will take biographic information. They'll take biometrics from you. They'll run those. Di they'll feed those biometrics and biographic information into a whole slew of federal uh, law enforcement and intelligence databases, both here in the U.S. and in addition into any available databases maintained overseas by the U.S. Embassy or Consulate. And all of that takes place before the person has even set foot on U.S. soil. And when the person does arrive at the airport, the vetting starts again. Uh, and all of this 
typically takes oh anywhere between a year and two years typically uh, to be completed. And so when you put all this together, it does seem to me that no competent terrorist would ever choose the U.S. refugee admission process as the preferred strategy for gaining entry into our territory. And that's why it seems so unnecessary. Let me move to another decision announced by uh, the president. He talked about it constantly during the uh, primaries. So no one's surprised at this decision, but I'd like your thoughts, first of all, on the constitutionality or legality of it, if you will, and, and then again as a policy, building a border wall between the United States and Mexico. And again, that is a decision of, of the president's to make, is it not? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, there, is a, there is some dispute over whether existing law permits him to use his current resources for that purpose. I personally think that it probably does. But the harder question is whether he will be able to get the money from Congress that it would take to build it. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars, and it's not at all clear that Congress is going to want to put up that kind of money. So what I'm guessing will happen, and it is only a guess, is that there will be some sort of compromise where a wall or some other type of fencing is built for some length of time, some length of border, rather, but certainly not for the entire border and nothing on the scale that I think Mr. Trump was imagining. Professor Lugomsky, how do, how do you think your former boss is reacting to all of this? Um, it, it's difficult. I, I'm sure um, Mr. Obama is very displeased um, about this. Uh, I know he has felt all along that uh, using such exorbitant sums of money to build a wall is not particularly effective. Uh, anytime we have extended the border fencing, uh, all it has done is force people who wish to enter illegally to go further along the border and draw across into spaces that are more rugged and more precipitous. The result has been more border deaths by drowning, by dehydration, by falls on uh, rugged, precipitous canyon terrain, and so on. And in addition, if a person really wants to come to the U.S. illegally, um, probably a much easier way to do it is to come in lawfully on a tourist visa and then overstay. So I think the president felt that this was an awfully large amount of money to pay for something that wouldn't accomplish anything anyway. And yet you have tens of millions of Americans who are very much on side with President Trump's decision. Well, we have 320 million or so Americans. Um, one of the uh, regrettable things, I think, is that such a small percentage of eligible voters turned out in the last election. I think it was something like 58% of eligible voters. And of those who did vote, a majority uh, actually chose um, Mr. Trump's opponent over him. Um, so that comes out to something like 25% of the American eligible voters actually voted for him. And it's not at all clear that everyone who voted for Mr. Trump uh, favored every policy that he proposed. So it's difficult to say what the support is for the wall. From most of the polling, it appears that most of these really tough enforcement measures really don't command a majority of the American electorate. It doesn't matter so much, does it really, uh, whether a majority votes for a majority of the population votes for one candidate or another? It didn't happen in this country when Prime Minister Trudeau became Prime Minister. The majority is often uh, decided, and I think it was in the United States on November the 8th, by the size of some of the constituencies, particularly California and New York, which are mostly Democrat, and where maybe those three or four million dollars, a million dollars, yeah, well, those three or four million extra votes that uh, Secretary Clinton got, most of those votes would have been. I think, situated in probably California and New York. Yeah, and I suppose you could say the same thing on the other side. Most of the votes that the, Mr. Trump got were situated heavily in the Deep South uh, or in the upper Midwest. 
Um, so it, it is true that each person drew, proportion, drew disproportionately from particular regions. But in the United States, every person's vote is supposed to be equal, and the fact that many of the voters lived in one place rather than another um, is probably less important. You've got a polarized country. Voting. You have a polarized country, don't you? We have a very polarized country, yes. And I think one of the things that most people agree on on both sides of the aisle is that we would do well to um, have more civil, constructive, thoughtful conversations with one another. I'm very envious of some of the debates that go on in Canada, uh, where the uh, political discourse seems to be at a much more elevated level. Once in a while. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Do you expect the president, Trump, to name more countries whose citizens are banned from entering the United States, such as perhaps some European nations with citizens who may have fought with ISIS or al-Qaeda, but then returned to their homelands, and now with Euro passports, could travel to the United States? You know, that's a great question. Uh, And to answer it, I should point out that in the actual executive order, uh, in deciding which countries... Um, uh, people are going to be banned from. The president doesn't actually say you have to be a national of that country. It says you're from that country. So I don't know how this will come to be applied to people who are nationals of those seven countries but who are living, let's say, in Europe. Beyond that, um, it's hard to imagine that the president would extend the order to nationals of any European country generally because to do so would almost uh, guarantee that those European countries would reciprocate with similar obligations on Amer- similar restrictions on American travelers, which would be politically unacceptable. Beyond that, however, um, there are several other Middle East countries that many people were surprised not to see on the list, countries like Saudi Arabia, um, also Afghanistan, not in the Middle East, but Afghanistan, which are uh, another country in which there has been um, a real difficulty with terrorism. Pakistan, of course, another uh, such country. And so it's always conceivable that the president could extend the ban to one of those countries, but um, it's very difficult to predict. And very in, well, he isn't inconsistent. He's very inconsistent as far as uh, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan is concerned, certainly, or are concerned. I would have expected them to be on the list as well. Yeah, I, I would have also. I'm, I'm not sure why that was the case. But the only similar example I can think of in recent years was in the, after, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Uh, president Bush issued a list of 25 countries uh, whose nationals would be required to register through this special procedure. Uh, the 25 countries consisted of 24 Muslim-majority countries plus North Korea. Uh, the program was largely ineffective for several reasons, so they canceled it after a few months. Um, but that's the only uh, analogous example in modern times that I can think of. Did uh, President Obama make executive decisions involving refugees and immigration, which Republicans wanted to challenge, or maybe determining the number of Syrian refugees allowed into the United States? Um, The Republicans are very unhappy with President Obama's uh, willingness to admit, uh, I think it was 10,000 Syrian refugees. They weren't questioning the legality of that, because the statute makes very clear that it's up to the president and the president alone to decide how many refugees will come in and from where. But on policy grounds, um, I would think it's fair to say that the majority of Republicans in Congress uh, were unhappy with that decision. What was the most challenging case for you to take on uh, as the uh, chief counsel of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, mostly I dealt with lots and lots and lots of very specific esoteric uh, issues as to which the statute was ambiguous. Um, 
I have to think hard to think of a good example of, a, of an especially demanding case that stands out. Um, can I come back to that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Are, are there limits on immigration decisions a president may take unilaterally? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in the U.S., unlike most of the parliamentary democracies, uh, Congress has spelled out the immigration laws in minute detail. Our immigration statute uh, now runs more than 600 pages. The result of that is that while there is a good deal of discretion remaining in the executive branch, it's much more limited. And so, for example, in the U.S., unlike in most countries, uh, Congress has specified exactly how many people we will take for family reunification, uh, broken down by subcategory, how many people we will take on the basis of their occupational qualifications, uh, and so on. Uh, the refugee system is a, is a major exception where they've given that discretion to Congress. But most of those uh, policies are really determined by Congress, which also lays out the precise criteria for who is allowed to commit under these various programs and under what circumstances. At the beginning of our uh, interview, you mentioned the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, has uh, started a, already started or filed a case against uh, the president's decision on uh, on the refugee and uh, and visa issue. Um, How's that going to be, and we have only a minute, uh, Professor Legomsky, how's that fundamentally going to be fought? Is, it going to, is the argument going to be made that the president has made his decision based solely or mostly on, uh, on the fact that these are Muslim mostly countries? You know, I, I'm sorry to wimp out on that question, but the truth is that uh, the complaint was filed only this morning, and I haven't yet seen it, so I'm just guessing. But my guess would be uh, that the argument is that Either the executive order itself was unlawful because it was motivated by religious discrimination. I'm just guessing that that's the argument. Or possibly the argument might be that even if the executive order would otherwise be lawful, uh, it would be a violation of due process to apply it to people who are already en route to the United States at the time it was issued. Okay. Well, I'll... I'll uh, but again, I emphasize that's just speculation because I haven't seen the complaint. Right. I appreciate that. So we'll delay this uh, the, the question until the, or your next visit. I hope you'll come back. <laughs> okay. It'll give me time to think of a good answer. Yeah. And you, you can always do what I say. When people say to me, what was the toughest interview you've ever done? I always say all of them. <laughs> I was going to say this one. Except for this one. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoy talking to you. Thanks for having me. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So I'll try and condense my answer. The, the fundamental thing is we have been able to move forward on putting a national price on carbon pollution. We've put forward a pan-Canadian framework in which all different provinces have made commitments uh, to reduce their carbon emissions in ways that has never been done before. We are moving forward in a thoughtful way that recognizes that climate change is a tremendous challenge, but also an opportunity. An opportunity to create new jobs, to generate new ways of creating energy, of generating energy. Uh, new ways of moving forward in a way that respects the environment and builds opportunities and jobs for everyone. That's what we need to do. The transition will not happen overnight. We are going to need uh, to work with uh, families right across the country who uh, need to get, you know, get, get adjusted to the new pressures and uh, issues around climate change. So he, we, was, do he was doing so well uh, when he was with the t on the talking points. And then he skidded off the talking points and started to ad lib. And that's when the soup spilled out the side of the bowl. I always try to come up with a metaphor that's visual. 
those of us with limited cranial capacity do that. Uh, <laughs> Catherine Swift, Linda Lefidel, Michelle Simpson, they're the beauty sign, the beast. So there's the prime minister, and uh, clearly they were memorized talking points when he started, and then he stumbled when he got into the, let me, uh, let me um, uh, speak about the Canadian families. It's really painful, and I don't, I'm not trying to be cruel, but it's painful to listen. And you, I actually find myself hoping that he'll be able to make his way through a half a dozen sentences. I think, he, I think he's so worried about stumbling verbally that he actually creates the problem for himself. Michelle, when you, when you sat with Justin Trudeau, and I'm going to get to the, the, the tour in just a second. When you sat with Justin Trudeau, I don't remember before him, before he became prime minister, I don't remember Trudeau having trouble speaking. Well, no, because he, you know, he, when he's, when you're passionate about certain things, um, and you have the luxury of being a backbencher, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a lot of comfort there, but you're quite right. He wants to be perfect like his persona, his hair, his clothes, his family. He wants to be perfect. And he obviously doesn't have any passion for this, real passion for this subject. He's just, uh, but he was never a good ad-libber. No, well, he certainly has problems. We, we all talk about it. And I, I, I'm not trying, like I said, I'm not trying to be cruel. I, I actually find myself rooting for the guy to be able to get through 30 seconds or a minute of, of conversation, of providing an answer, of making a point without getting into trouble. Because what happens is when he starts to have the verbal stumbles, people don't listen to the content anymore. They just wait for the next stumble. Um, what, about the, uh, what about the tour, Linda? How would you assess it? Give it a score 1 to 10. Okay, well, let's put it at zero. <laughs> you know what? I think, and, and this, I think people are getting, his, the honeymoon's over, and they're looking through this, and does he really mean it from the heart? And when you say he stumbled on this, I think he stumbled, Roy, because he knows that this is going to increase the cost of living for hardworking families. Here in Ontario, Kathleen Wynne is getting it right between the eyes. Protesters, when she speaks up, when she comes to speak, hydro bills they can't afford. I just renewed my sticker today. It's up to $120. Now she has to backpedal on road tolls. But anyway, going back to, to Trudeau, he knows these hardworking families are fed up. So I don't even think he's buying the rhetoric no matter who wrote the speech. And I think that, you know, going across Canada on this tour, I don't know. The honeymoon's over. People are realizing they need jobs. They need income. They need to feel good. And they don't need another tax. And Catherine, it's interesting, Global News had a poll done by Ipsos. And in that poll, and it was asked, how, where's your favorability? Who do you favor most for Prime Minister of Canada? And if Kevin O'Leary was named as the leader of the Conservative Party, he had 37% support. Justin Trudeau had 38%. Um, <laughs> Maxime Bernier had 28%. And Kelly Leach had 26%. Those were the ones that were polled. So it's nip and tuck already if it's O'Leary versus Trudeau. Uh, yeah, how would you assess? How do you assess what he's done? What has he accomplished well, think, on this tour? Yeah, I'd, I'd like. Well, the tour, I think it shows if he gets off script, he's in trouble. That's what I think it shows. 
uh, and and of course he's he's blurted out a few things that were either inane, such as he had a grandfather from Scotland, so he understands the immigrant experience. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was unintentional. Brutal. So. Brutal. Uh, or we have to phase out the oil sands. Boy, that sure got people perked up and <laughs> paying attention. But I think he, he just doesn't come across as sincere at all. That's that's my assessment. And, and, and he seems to have to he has this compulsion to identify with everybody, even to invent such ridiculous stuff as, oh, I feel your pain because I had a grandfather from Scotland or whatever. So, but it hasn't done him any favors. On the other hand, it has exposed because he has, he can't be scripted completely. I mean, I think he's partially scripted for sure. But, you know, when you're in an open forum, it's a lot tougher to be scripted. And I think a lot of his fundamental flaws uh, ha- have come out in the process. But in terms of that poll, you know, one poll, of course, never makes a, a trend. And I, I guess, and O'Leary also, when that poll was done, he was the new shiny, you know, the shiny uh, one in the Tory leadership race. So I guess I'd like to see exactly where the dust is going to settle in the next little while. And, of course, O'Leary's biggest challenge is, is, is well, his biggest imminent challenge, anyway, is, is winning the leadership. Right. Because even though I'm sure he is attracting support, in politics, you know, just being a big, uh, well, Joe Oliver, former federal finance minister, lost yeah. the ability to be a provincial yeah. conservative candidate in Ontario. So just because you have a big name, if you don't have the machine under you in, in politics, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed. So time will tell. This wasn't about Kevin O'Leary to me. This was about Justin Trudeau and where his popularity stands. L- yeah. Linda, we have uh, 40 seconds left. You had a horrible customer relations experience, <laughs> and, and you've now been invited to participate in a customer relations email I Summit. You religiously all the time and I get invited to this customer experience leadership forum and then I look at the players at the table Air Canada now come on guys what only weeks ago I told you I got stranded for two days in airports in Minnesota and in Chicago because of Air Canada and they treated me like I was the enemy and then they lose my luggage on top right. of it and I'm going what this is a customer leadership forum? okay okay stop 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 just the time. We've I, run out of I time. Okay. Go, though, but there's other players, and we all know that corporate companies better wake up. Consumers beauties. are number one. We have to go, beauties. I know. But I, read, I, did a sp- I did a spoof spot years ago, and I, I ended it with this. Yes, tomorrow, when you get up at the crack of noon, stay where you are. Let Air Canada go. <laughs> <laughs> Toodaloo! The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.